Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. It's the annual Hong Kong International Film Festival with 230 movies and documentaries showing around Hong Kong until April the 5th. On last week's programme, the Festival Society's Executive Director, Roger Garcia, talked to me about his boyhood as the son of Hong Kong's first ombudsman and how he first formed a love of movies through the 60s films of Jean-Luc Godard. Roger is also a Hollywood producer. In this week's programme, he talks about helping to found the Hong Kong Film Archive, preserving old movies, Hong Kongers who love dogs and futuristic filmmaking. I was glad that because we did these Hong Kong retrospective programs, and of course it wasn't only Cantonese cinema of the 50s, later we did, we did the retrospective every year for many years, and we would cover all aspects of Hong Kong cinema, like the Mandarin cinema. 1980, we did a great program on Hong Kong martial arts films. It was, that was uh, one of our highlights, and the book is great as well. And all of these programs basically created a sort of momentum to eventually set up the Hong Kong Film Archive. We've had you at boarding school, then moving back, working for the Hong Kong government. You're involved in the second and third Hong Kong International Film Festival. And then where does your career take you? Well, you know, when you work in the government, you, you have to do all sorts of different things. So after I worked in the cultural services department, I worked in environmental protection and I, of course, it's a logical and natural progression. <laughs> and uh, basically, I was involved in drafting and implementing um, environmental legislation in the early 80s. I was a special, not a specialist, but I was involved in uh, noise and air pollution. That's my thing. So I, to this day, I still know about noise pollution, which, is, which was a big problem, you know, in Hong Kong. And then after that, the government set up a new department called the Recreation and Culture Department. It was under Barry Wiggum, who was another great guy, a Hong Kong civil servant, a really dedicated public servant. And I worked for Barry on cultural matters. It was slightly different from what I was doing in City Hall. Uh, basically, I was in charge of uh, subventions to performing arts groups, things like Chung Ying Theatre, uh, Hong Kong Ballet, the Hong Kong Philharmonic, couple of other uh, other groups as well and then I was also involved in setting up the Academy for Performing Arts. Uh, we had a commitment from the Jockey Club to pay for the capital works of that uh, building um, and the government granted the land. So I worked on that and I was also involved in helping to set up the Fringe Festival um, at that time. When did you actually return to Hong Kong actually? I came back in 1977, so all this, uh, and then I was working in the Recreation and Culture Department in the early 80s when things were beginning to take off. Hong Kong was known as a cultural desert in the 70s, so that's why there was this kind of um, momentum. And people like Darwin Chen and Barry Wiggum are truly the people who pushed this in the government. If you don't, if they didn't push it, then there probably wouldn't have been much interest and we probably wouldn't be where we are now. And I think, you know, if we think about, you know, culture and cultural facilities in Hong Kong, you need to have the cultural facility, apart from the funding, in order to make things work. And, you know, people like Barry and Darwin uh, not only did the hardware, but actually they also did the software, so to speak. And I think that's very important. And I just wanted to add one thing, is that I was also sent off at that time to do the first report, um, official report, on the visual arts in Hong Kong, which is now a big, big thing. But at that time, it was 
you know, the government did, know, did not know what to do, and so I was sent off to write this report. And I met a number of artists and art dealers as they were then. It was actually Sandra Walters, who is still around. There was the museum, but that was run by the Urban Council. So uh, the, the picture of Hong Kong as an art place was very unclear. After I talked to a lot of people, basically my finding was that we need to have studio space for artists, of course, and the second thing is that we need to have a better infrastructure to encourage um, art dealers in Hong Kong, because Hong Kong eventually could become, as, it, as in its entrepot role, something of a shop window for art in China. And that was my report. I also suggested setting up a visual arts council, because the problem with the visual arts is as the government told me, it was that, you know, we don't know who to talk to. There's no association. I said, that's the very nature of visual arts. If you're a painter, you're painting on your own, basically. <laughs> but, you know, we, but we got over that. Um, so I think that, you know, I'm, I'm very happy to see the development now of Hong Kong as an art place. Although, you know, I think, you know, one could have a debate about if it's a good way or bad way. But, you know, at least we have visual artists in Hong Kong and we have an art market focus on from an international community who may or may not be interested in Hong Kong artists, but there must be some kind of spin-off there. The thing that I also found when I did my report, which I hope will happen at some point, is that we really should have a dedicated art school in Hong Kong. We have an Academy for Performing Arts, which also has a film school in it, but we don't actually have a visual arts academy. I know we have good departments in different universities, and maybe that's why we don't have it. But when you have a dedicated academy devoted to, let's say, well, in this case, the visual arts, then you really do have a concentration and an encouragement and a center, really, a center of gravity for that type of activity. Are you very much of the opinion that you've got to kind of create the facility because I think of, you know, when different kinds of examples, but when the Pompidou was created, when that uh, pyramid appeared outside the Louvre, everybody was a bit anti. Yes, I think, you know, in Hong Kong, buildings speak volumes in a way. And I think it's important in a place like Hong Kong to have some kind of facilities. We do, of course, have some of these facilities, and there's also the Visual Arts Centre in mid-levels uh, mid now, which is quite an interesting space. We do have some facilities, but, and I wouldn't say we need more, because I'm not really someone who believes that you need stuff all over the place, but I think that we certainly need certain centres of gravity in Hong Kong where people can devolve to, like if you're filmmakers or filmmakers and, and artists, or painters, can come and show their work and show their movies and a place where people can gather and which doesn't cost an arm and a leg to rent and where you can drop in and, and be very casual and where you can put on shows and that people know it. And if people know that there are certain type of shows going on there, then they will come. I mean, you can advertise until you're blue in the face, but if you're not known as a place where interesting things happen, then it doesn't work. But if you let things grow organically in this way, uh, like in, say, in an industrial space in Kuntong or, or something like that, then I think uh, people will, will go. I mean, you know, there, there, there was this trend uh, over the past couple of years, a few years, of these underground music 
gatherings in you know it's like a rave i suppose but you know you go to a certain place in an industrial building and you show up and there are like a thousand people there or something how do they know about it you know it's because and who is this group that's playing it's because you know there's a certain cult and communication but it's not uh, it's not like a real um, elite you know there are people who are interested in these sort of things and they show up and i think uh, we need a kind of space or a place in Hong Kong that is not like really far away in Fortan or something like that, but is in the centre of town and where people can go and do their own thing. What about West Kowloon? West Kowloon is a structured cultural district. It's going to have uh, big theatres and a great museum, M+, and it's going to be another version of, say, the South Bank, which is not a bad thing, but that is what I call for, say, high art, um, although it's not necessarily, but just using that kind of term, it's not exactly for spontaneous street art. You know, you cannot force these things. You can't say, look, here's a museum, go and produce punk art in there. You know, this has to come basically from people and, and where they are and what they do. And, f you know, putting them in a museum space is not going to do it. When I say we need a facility, what I really mean is that you need some industrial building and you just need to put a little bit of money into it, whether it's a developer like Sino or something like that, and then let people basically run it and do their own thing there. There are these warehouse galleries and things in Oakland in California. One of them burnt down, unfortunately, but they had artist spaces, artist studios there. No one actually said, oh, here's a space, go and do your thing there. Artists gradually, because they were pushed out by high rents, they went to these warehouses and gradually took them over and set up their studios and live work spaces in them. Now, you know, we have industrial buildings in Hong Kong. Many of them are now being pulled down and replaced by high-rise, glossy office buildings. But there must be some kind of places... And maybe in Hong Kong, it's a slightly different situation that if we designate a place where people can go and hang out, then that's great. I think the comics base in Wan Chai was a great space. Uh, that is mainly for cartoonists, though. Um, but, you know, something like that in an old building where, you know, you have a flexible space, I think that's a, a great thing. Returning to 1977, if you wanted to go to the cinema in that time, you'd have uh, surely been spoilt for choice. Not exactly. I mean, but we did have some big cinemas that I enjoyed. I used to go to the Oriental Cinema in Wan Chai, one of my favourite places. And there was also the Goethe Institute and the Alliance Francaise. At that time, um, I think the Goethe Institute had just moved into the art centre and they had 16 mil prints so they would show Wim Wenders movies and Murnau and things like that and there was Studio One as well but I actually liked going to the Goethe Institute to watch there because it was the new German cinema Werner Herzog and um, Fassbinder and Wenders they were showing some 16 mil prints of that uh, and then the uh, French cinema they were showing new wave stuff still so it was possible to watch Europe European art films in those contexts. There was Cine Art House in Wan Chai and San Hong Kai Center, I think. They showed uh, interesting things because they showed some Chinese movies as well as, uh, I think, Japanese films as well. Well, I used to watch samurai films and things like that anyway. And then I do remember now the Art Center did have their theater, but after we started the retrospectives in the Hong Kong Film Festival, 
there was suddenly somehow a release of films from the Beijing Film Archive. Someone put together a program of some of those films and showed them in the art center, and it was a real revelation to uh, film lovers in Hong Kong, particularly film critics, because it revealed a whole set of Chinese cinema in a concentrated form that I think none of them had ever experienced before. And it was the Jushilin people and Feimu and films like that that were coming out of China. And it was a fabulous retrospective or introduction. That was a program that uh, went also to the National Film Theatre in London or some form of it. Because the Hong Kong Film Archive continues to do a valuable job in terms of conserving and preserving uh, these old films. I remember a few years ago reporting on Feimu's uh, Confucius that they'd uh, found, sort of accidentally found? Uh, I think that was uh, partly through Barbara Fay, who who was an opera singer in Hong Kong, very well known, and who was the daughter of Feimu. And also the efforts of uh, Sam Ho, who I think was working in the archive at the time. And basically, they found the film. I, I guess Barbara Fay had it or knew where it was. And then they restored the movie. That is some, somewhat unusual because that's a movie that was shot in China in the 40s. And the archive does collect those works. But essentially, the archive, because it's a Hong Kong film archive, is dedicated towards Hong Kong films. They've been doing, I think, a good job a couple of years ago. They showed some films, uh, Hong Kong movies, that were made in the 30s and also the early 40s, and these have been impossible to see for many, many years. We know very little about Hong Kong cinema before the 1940s, partly because none of the prints have been available up to about now. Now, you've worked for the Hong Kong government, you've, uh, in, and also in environment, um, and uh, you were um, at the forefront of a lot of these arts institutes of various forms. But in terms of today, if you've got a, a young cinematographer or even an older cinematographer <laughs> starting out, um, do you think that in terms of the richness of Hong Kong films, looking back, you know, um, I mean, obviously Hong Kong is very famous for martial arts, mm. but it's, it's so much more, isn't it? Yes, it is. And I think that what I said just now about melodrama being the cornerstone of much of Hong Kong movies still holds true today. It's social melodrama, actually. And you see that in recent years. Uh, Anne Hui's Toje, A Simple Life, I think it's called. And then more recently, Mad World by the young filmmaker. It's his first film, I think, Wong Chun, which actually did very well. It has Sean Yu and Eric Jung in it, two big stars, actually, in Hong Kong. And they are in this small film, you know, about a father and his uh, slightly dysfunctional, um, mentally uh, dysfunctional son. And I think, you know, people responded to that. And I think that's one of our strong traditions. Of course, I'm not saying that you should make that sort of film all the time, but we've certainly had some great practitioners of it, one of whom, unfortunately, is no longer really making films called Alan Fong, who was a leader of the Hong Kong New Wave in the late 70s and early 80s and made two masterpieces, Father and Son, his debut film, and also um, Ah Ying, which is truly one of the great Hong Kong movies, I think. And that tradition continues today, and I think it's a good thing. And people respond in Hong Kong to movies like that, it seems, 
I think because these films are about everyday life. And, you know, when you watch TV, you don't actually watch everyday life on your TV. You know, you watch some glossified or some extreme version. But I think films like Mad World, which I quite like as a movie, Simple Life, which I like and uh, uh, quite a lot, and Ah Ying, which I think is one, as I said, I am really enthusiastic, uh, passionate about. I think these films really do show something of Hong Kong life and more importantly, um, you know, how people in Hong Kong feel and think. Um, there's another film that I also like a lot by Angie Chen called My Darling Life. And it's uh, Angie is a feature filmmaker but now makes documentaries. It's a documentary about dogs and dog owners in Hong Kong. And I'm not sure if you've seen this film. It was made a few years ago. It is truly a great film. Because what it shows, and I think to a lot of people, whether in the outside world or people in Hong Kong, is that Hong Kong people are not totally obsessed with money and the price of property and things like that. They really have a certain humanity to them and sympathy and empathy to them, which is expressed in Angie's documentary through the love of their dogs. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, the love of your dog means that you deny your love of your fellow human being. But I think the film shows that, you know, Hong Kong people have these feelings that, you know, are not very often expressed in Hong Kong movies or in the media and things like that. You know, you read about people shouting at each other in the streets because of uh, political divisions or people, you know, lining up to buy property on speculation, people obsessed with getting jobs and things like that. That's very important as well. But I think the basic humanity of Hong Kong society and Hong Kong people, let me put it like that, is reflected in these movies, just as they were in some of the melodramas in the 50s. And I think this is a very strong part of um, Hong Kong cinema and how it interfaces with uh, you know, some of our realities. Of course, the world knows us mainly for martial arts or action films, not very many action films are being shot in Hong Kong now. Uh, of course, we do a lot of co-production with China. So a lot of those films are now made in China, where the market is bigger. But also, with a bigger market, it means you can spend more on special effects and things. And nowadays, if you want to make a box office hit that's an action film, it really has to be quite loaded up with these special effects. I was recently talking to another friend who is making a kind of animation in China and uh, I must say I, I was completely fascinated by the whole thing because the studio is a warehouse with a number of sensors in essentially a black box. The actors are all wearing black ninja type outfits with sensors on them and so it's all green screen actually and there is no real camera to speak of, there's a kind of a, a sensor and you can follow the character through this green screen warehouse and when you look at the screen you basically see him dressed as you want him to be dressed as say you know a martial artist in the Ming dynasty or a Tang dynasty or something and he's in a landscape that you create digitally but you can actually see that live on the screen and of course the guy doesn't have a human face but he's got a face that looks pretty realistic and I saw some of the tests and I was completely knocked out. I know this has been going on for some time. It's something that you find in gaming technology. But when applied to cinema, it's really amazing. And 
the thing is that for those of you who who make films, you don't have setups. Basically, you know that that's a very time-consuming part of filmmaking. You shoot one guy, and then you change the whole setup and lights, and then you shoot the other guy, and they're having a conversation. But with this technology, you don't have a, essentially a camera, so you don't have setups. You have something that is filming, if I can put it that way, the person 360 degrees from every angle, which you then choose in the editing later on. So you are following this guy, and basically you can choose whatever angles later when you're doing post production. And this guy, he could be a chivalrous knight dressed in flowing robes in Tang Dynasty China. He could be underwater today, or he could be in outer space. It doesn't really matter. You can dress him in whatever digital costume and whatever digital background you want. It's amazing technology. Are we just going to be able to do a sort of a Hong Kong backdrop? Yes, actually, technically, yes. You could go back to Hong Kong in the 1950s and shoot a movie like that. Although I have to say that I, I think that it, it's not far off. But the technology of imposing a real actor's face on those figures is that technology is probably not far off. I mean, the perfection of that technology. When that happens, you truly can shoot a very realistic-looking movie in whatever. Place you want now. Some people would be horrified by that idea, but I think that the cinema is expansive. It's inclusive rather than exclusive. You can still make sixty-five millimeter Kodak celluloid films like Chris Nolan and Dunkirk, but you should also be able to make these types of how should I say it half human, <laughs> half animation <laughs> type of movies, which can really uh, reflect whatever is in your mind. I think that is fascinating, and that for me is a great future because a lot of this stuff is also going on online platforms, and it can be shot. Relatively cheaply because you don't have to build sets and things like that. Of course, it all comes down to how good is the film. But the fact that you have the means at your disposal to make this kind of movie is truly amazing. With two hundred and thirty movies on show at、uh, the Hong Kong International Film Festival, how do you choose them? Well, I have a good programming team. There are about three of them, <laughs> and they watch a lot of movies.、Uh, we go to film festivals and watch movies there. We of course have、uh, quite a lot of submissions coming in.、Uh, of course, we know filmmakers. We know whether they have a new film coming out or something like that, and we approach them and ask them. So it's a multifaceted process, I would say.、Uh, it's not too different from all other film festivals, but we're looking maybe we have about three thousand submissions. I think we're, we're probably I don't really know how many films we watch in order to arrive at two hundred and thirty. People do watch films, you know, continuously. I would say that it's probably, if you take it that we're watching maybe two thousand films a year and we're choosing maybe around two hundred, it's about a ten percent, which is about ten to fifteen percent, probably about right. And what's what's representing Hong Kong? We have another Angie Chen documentary actually called "I've Got the Blues," which is a very interesting documentary on the artist Yang Wang. Uh, we have the first ever, I think, program of Bridget Lin films, fourteen films of hers, some from Taiwan where she started her career, but actually、uh, quite a lot from Hong Kong, which is where she really consolidated and became a movie star. And then we have our Hong Kong Panorama, which is films from the past year of Hong Kong movies. Now you've worked as a producer. You've also been involved, as you say, with working with the government on cultural issues. But I've read that your your preferred 
uh, job is as, as writer and critic? <laughs> well, um, critic not so much, but yes, I, you know, I, uh, although I studied painting, I was actually uh, writing quite a lot when I was uh, studying painting and filmmaking. And when I say writing, I was actually writing about art. So I was at that time an art historian by training. Uh, but then I moved to writing about movies and I trained myself actually in a way by watching movies and making notes and writing about them and reading some books about films and trying to learn about uh, film criticism in a sense, but not truly as a reviewer. I'm more of a what I call a filmologist. I, I write about movies. I write about individual films as a critic sometimes, but I'm not the sort of guy who goes out and reviews films all the time. I'm really more interested in writing about certain films that you know interest me, uh, which bring up certain types of uh, maybe aesthetic issues or something like that. Now, if you were now to make a Hong Kong film... What, what would your choice of topic be? Would you try and recreate that 1950s melodrama? Well, actually, I do have a project which is partly Hong Kong-based, but it's not totally. My project that I've been developing for some time is about the history of martial arts movies in Hong Kong told through a, uh, the eyes of a stuntman. And the stuntman is a guy who actually has made a career out of playing uh, women, uh, being a stuntman for stunts that women are supposed to do so you could say technically he's a kind of transvestite stuntman um, the such guys do exist and the idea is that it's a movie about this guy in his life and what stage is that at uh, well i i've been trying to think about it and it, it's very difficult because of the time scale um, it starts off uh, probably in san francisco now i'm casting it more of an archival Work That is to say, someone discovers boxes of films and tapes in a basement. Actually, my basement. <laughs> I live in California as well, by the way. <laughs> and through these tapes and documents, this person finds that someone was trying to make a film about the life of this transvestite stuntman, and gradually they put the story together. My thanks to Roger Garcia, the executive director of the Hong Kong International Film Festival Society. If you'd like to buy tickets to watch any of the 230 movies and documentaries on show until April the 5th, then go to the festival website. I'm hoping Roger will come back on Hong Kong Heritage for more movie tales. Today, I want to finish by remembering the wonderful singers and actors Anita Moy and Leslie Jiang. This year marks 15 years since their untimely deaths. To mark this anniversary, the Hong Kong Film Archive is revisiting their glory days with a series of 37 of their films from March the 27th until June the 10th. So here are Anita Moy and Leslie Jiang with Yun Fun or Destiny. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs> No
困苦中百转，但结果在眼前，事实真相无怨。我已不敢再说，来日。